Welcome back to the Read Connected podcast. Today is a pretty special day for me because I've been waiting for the three of us to come together for quite some time. Today, Gerald and I are joined by Dr. Luis Perez to talk a little bit about proactive design to minimize barriers. Welcome, Luis. Thank you. It's so I'm so glad to be here with the two of you, and it's an honor to be part of the podcast, and I look forward to our conversation. We're so grateful for your support and for being with us today. And I have to say, I feel so honored to have known you both as a colleague through our work together and our passions for universal design for learning, but also as a friend. So it's a privilege to learn so much from and with you over these years. And one of the things that I will share with the audience is that you have a penchant for helping others to better understand themselves as learners, the people who work with them to better understand the variability and differences that are among a group of individuals, whether it's in a learning environment or elsewhere, and just generally with the world. And both of us you know, do work that maybe not everybody knows is even available to them. So I know this is probably a longer conversation, but if possible, can you share a little bit with our listeners about the work that you do and maybe a little bit about what led you to this professional path of yours? Great question. Uh, definitely would take a longer conversation, but I'll try to share the highlights. So my work currently focuses on digital accessibility thinking about uh, how do we design websites? How do we design documents? How do we design the communications that we share with others to make sure that they're free of barriers, that they're accessible, that they allow people to get access to the information so then they can do something with it. Before I jumped into the world of digital accessibility, I was an uh, accessibility consultant focusing on assistive technology. And that work is still near and dear to my heart because I'm a user of assistive technology. So I bring a sort of a firsthand experience of what it's like to use both accessible and inaccessible environments. And I'm also a user who realizes the power of technology. So you and I know that universal design for learning is a framework for instructional design. And we think about things like the assessments that we design, the materials, the methods. But... For some people that are interacting with universally designed environments, technology is key. Without uh, the access that the technology facilitates, there is no universal design for learning. So that's really what has inspired my work, is to think about the ways in which technology creates that access and opens the door so that then you can enjoy the rest of the benefits that come along with implementing universal design for learning as that instructional piece. And so my experience is really shaped, or my perspective on the world is really shaped by my own experience as a person with a disability or disabled person. I actually prefer identity-first language. There is person-first language where it's, you know, person with a disability or person who is blind. But I don't see my disability as something that's separate from who I am. It's an integral part of who I am. It's not all that I am. There's lots of different facets to who I am. But definitely my experience of disability really shapes the way that I look at the world. And so I use identity first language. I consider myself a disabled person. And again, that just has to do with my lived experience uh, and how I interact with the world. So just to fill in the audience on a little bit of background, I have a visual impairment. And it's the result of a genetic condition that leads to progressive vision loss. And so I've been losing my vision since I was in my teens, but I only really became aware of it later on in life because I tried to learn how to drive. 
And so when you try to learn how to drive, your use of peripheral vision is kind of key. You have to be able to see the cars around you. So a quick story is that I took the driving test in three different states, in New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, and Pennsylvania. Our old stomping grounds. <laughs> exactly. And New Jersey was kind enough to give me a driver's license, which I still use for identification purposes. But I haven't driven in about 20 years, just out of safety concerns. And in fact, that's how I found out about my disability, is that I got into a series of car accidents. And after that, I decided to go to the eye doctor because the car accidents were happening always on the side. And it just so happens that the doctor that I visited was a specialist in retinal disorders or retinal conditions. And so, you know, in a very quick amount of time, I was went from not having a visual impairment to all of a sudden visiting a number of different specialists and being diagnosed with a visual impairment. And by that point, I had built my whole life, you know, my whole identity. And so that was a really disruptive event in my life where everything changed from like, can I drive myself to work? Can I provide for my family when, you know, I have to adjust the work that I do? All of those questions became part of my life. And there was a mental health component to it. And we can share in the show notes my TED Talk, TED-Ed Talk, where I discuss this quite a bit. But that was a really dark time in my life right after I was diagnosed with it. And to be quite honest, I almost didn't make it. I went to a really, really deep depression, really dark time in my life. And that's where the technology piece came in, because one day I picked up a job while I was a graduate student at the University of South Florida, and the lab that I worked in, they had just gotten brand new Macs. And these were the first Macs that had a screen reader in them. And I was just playing around with the settings because I needed to set them up for the lab. And I discovered a screen reader, and it started speaking to me. The computer started speaking to me, and the voice was really good. That's incredible. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, I was like mesmerized by this. And it wasn't even the technology itself and the high quality of the voice. It's really the message that it communicated to me that there are these things, right? There are these people that are working on amazing technologies. And as a result of that, my life is going to be better. And we'll get into this as we go on with this conversation. But I think is important to not just be told, you know, you're going to lose your vision, but there are, there are these supports, there are these things that you can do and that you can use to make your life better. And for me, that moment, I, you know, I call it a magical moment because it definitely changed my life in an instant to hear a screen reader for the first time and to know that my life was going to be better because there's a whole army of people at these companies creating technology and evolving them over time so that I enjoy that access. So that I enjoy that access to my education, so I enjoy that access to my hobbies, which we can talk about too, because I have some interesting hobbies for personal and visual impairment, and so that I can enjoy that access to services, and we'll talk about that as well. So I can live a full, fulfilling life, right? And so that was a key moment in my life, and that informs my work. I've seen that magical moment happen many, many times over the years, where someone comes to me and they've just been diagnosed or they've been told they have a condition. And my job is to say, well, there are these things out there that you can use to continue to enjoy what you were doing before. And so the conversation should always be not, can we do this, but how do we do this? And that's really my job is to talk to people about the things they can use to make things possible, whatever that may be, work, learning, your hobbies, your relationships. 
Louise, first of all, thank you for sharing that with us and with our listeners. You know, you and I have known each other for quite a while and, and I'm just so grateful for your comfort in sharing your message and your story because going through something as traumatic as learning you were losing your vision and then not knowing what options would even help you navigate through life after that must have been incredibly frightening and disorienting on so many different levels, especially knowing you as a person and how you show up in life to really put your whole self into everything you do and to feel like there was something shifting and changing that you needed to adapt to must have been really difficult. And as as you're telling your story again here today, I'm just so grateful for even the idea of universal design in the world, right? Not just in learning, but knowing that there are other accessibility points and options that are available to help people navigate through our world. And, and I was thinking a little bit about how there's often this expectation that things will be easy and accessible as you know we have access to technology, that there's a lot of universally designed features in communities now, whether it's a curb cut or an automatic door or other things that are getting integrated into our worlds and our communities and really acknowledging that there's a purpose and intention for those features as they're designed and how they don't only create access, they create empowerment for people who might not have felt empowered before. So I'm so grateful for you to share that. There was a, a post on Instagram by Dr. Chris Willard, who's a meditation and mindfulness expert, who was talking about a universally designed playground in Massachusetts and how all the kids in the neighborhood want to go there because it allows for everybody to be together and to enjoy and explore and play without as many limitations as there were before. And I'm just constantly reminded of this. And I say all the time, once you know about universal design, it's hard not to know about it. It's hard not to see it. But there's also limitations on so many different levels. And I've known few others who are as genuinely compelled to assist, lend guidance, support, and aim to provide additional clarity to those who seek more accessibility in the way they design learning environments and resources than you. We work with some amazing people, but I just want to point back to maybe some of the things that have been most impactful for you in your work with others. When you are helping somebody to see different options, is there something that often comes up that maybe is like a small tweak that opens up the possibilities on so many different levels for people? Or is there a story that really sticks out for you that'd be great to share with the audience? I have a couple. I think the reason why I'm so big on telling my story is because other people telling their stories really sort of open the world to me. It's difficult to acknowledge that, you know, you need help. <laughs> and so for me, when I was first diagnosed, before I got into the high-tech space as well, there was a small piece of technology that I needed to come to terms with, and that was the white cane. The white cane is it's a big sticking point for some of us when we're diagnosed with a visual impairment because it says to the world, I'm a person with a visual impairment or I'm a disabled person. And it changes the way in which people approach you, for better or for worse. In some cases, it's been helpful. Like people have kept me from walking into the Sydney Harbor one time. I was trying to get a photo and I was almost walking into the water and somebody stopped me from doing that. So that's the time when it was helpful. But then at times, people expect less of you because they see the white cane and their preconceived ideas and their biases start to come out. So 
the white cane is something that was difficult for me to come to terms with. And I would always like lose it, you know, in quotes. It's a podcast, so you can't see my air quotes. But in quotes, I would lose my white cane or I would forget it, you know. And so just coming to terms with that technology and what it took is just seeing other people using that technology. And the key word that you mentioned was empowerment. Like I saw how it empowered them to do things that they weren't able to do before. And so sometimes it's not high tech. Sometimes it's low tech or a very small adjustment. It could be just larger print, like you write things in a larger size so that everybody can see it better. Not just a person who has a visual impairment, but somebody who may be a little bit older. Unfortunately for me, those overlap. (laughs) I am a person with a disability and I'm also getting older. So just know that like, yes, a screen reader is a high tech option and it does take some training for you to get the most out of it. But there are often small tweaks that you can make to the environment. It could be as simple as like if you have an office that people come to receive services, what's the seating like in that environment? Is there enough space for people to get around or are things crowded? Are things clearly labeled? So just little tweaks that you can make to the environment so that people not only feel they can use the environment, but they feel welcome there. Because when you come to an environment and you find barriers, basically you don't feel welcome. It feels like the environment was not designed with you in mind. And so you're less likely to continue to come back. And often when we're providing support to people that face challenges in their lives, it's not a one-time thing. We need them to keep coming back. And so, you know, I think that's important. Just think that it's it's sometimes small tweaks that you can make to the design that have a big impact. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. And when we can proactively think about how different individuals might navigate new environments, we want to be mindful of being welcoming, right? More than anything else to get started. And, you know, often when I'm designing something, I try to start with the edge cases, And it's not because I'm designing for the edge cases. It's because if I design for the edge cases, I design for everybody in between. So I found that it's often as easy as thinking, what if a blind person were to show up to my office? What if a person that uses a wheelchair shows up to my office? And that's not the majority of people with disabilities, by the way. That's a very small portion of the population, even within people with disabilities in the world. But by thinking about their needs, now I'm redesigning the environment. I'm redesigning the space so that people can come in and use their wheelchairs. But also, if somebody needs to sign, for instance, if you're uh, using sign language, you need a little bit more space because the other person needs to be able to see, you know, not just your face, they need to be able to see your signs. So all of a sudden, I've made the environment work for two different groups of people and so on. So thinking about that proactively, like, let me start with the edge cases. If I design for them, then that design is going to work better for a whole bunch of people. Oh, yeah. Gerald's heard me (laughs) say this many times, especially when it comes to physical space, to just as a starting point, right? These are sometimes things that we have more ability to manipulate and shift and change. And I think that's a good starting point to work with and to learn from. And there's so many great resources available. That's the beauty of this point in time, I think, is that we have access to seeing things that we might not have seen if we weren't visiting and exploring different regions of the world and different communities that we can actually get a sneak peek 
behind the scenes of a school or university that was designed for individuals with hearing impairments, where the physical space was designed differently, or individuals who go to schools who have visual impairments, and the school is designed proactively to support their needs. You know, how do we integrate that into communities for all individuals instead of it just being for one particular population? So I appreciate that so much. And when you look around, as we talk about UDL and as we teach it to people around the world, Luis, we're constantly pointing out things that have been designed to meet the needs of a specific population, but they help so many in so many different ways. And again, that access point just creates a different experience. And we talk so much about mental health here. And, and Jar, I want to get you into this conversation too, as we recognize that there are so many challenges in life just in general. <laughs> and there are so many changes that we might not be able to anticipate that can happen. You talked about getting older. I'm not saying that that is necessarily you, Louise, because you're very youthful in so many ways. But you know, as our brains continue to develop, evolve, and change, and maybe our bodies shift and change, or something else is impacting us in a different way, you know, there's there's so many different ways in which we might need to pivot and shift our approach to navigating through learning environments or life. And oftentimes these frustrations in this change, any change could feel disorienting or frustrating. You know, we all experience this with COVID when there is so much uncertainty and so much change and we had to shift the way in which we approached each day. You know, when we think about all of these struggles and especially the mental health challenges and frustrations that might come up, I'm thinking about in those moments when environments or spaces or interactions might feel inaccessible, what are some of the things that we could be more mindful of to support individuals going through a transition, a change, or even learning how to advocate for what they need? Because I know sometimes even asking for help or what you know is helpful could be a barrier in and of itself. Well, great timing, Alexis, because I was just watching a webinar on trauma-informed design recently. I have a certification in web accessibility, and as part of that, I have to get CEUs or continuing education credits every year. And I was watching a webinar for that reason, and it was discussing trauma-informed design, and I really hadn't thought about that. But it really kind of addresses the intersection of a lot of what we've been talking about. The way that you design the physical environment is important. The way that you design the learning environment and how people get information and are able to make a sense of it, which is where our passion lies with universal design for learning. But also thinking about each interaction has an emotional component to it, right? We often remember the words of Dr. David Rose when he says, teaching is emotional work. But it's not just teaching. Any kind of service profession where we're there to help people, there's an emotional component to it. So when I was diagnosed with my disability, right, there was the medical components of it, but the emotional components were just as important. Like, how did I process the news? How did I feel empowered? How did I feel supported? And so on. So there's little things that we can do to make sure that we're creating a more trauma-informed design. Because when people are in crisis, they need to be able to get access to information with a minimum of friction and a minimum of frustration so that they can get access to the services that they need in order to address whatever that crisis or challenge it is that they're facing. So there's a few small things we can do. One is always think about cognitive load. 
So for instance, if someone is seeking services for mental health and we present them with a long page of text, unlikely that they're going to read that information, unlikely that they're going to be able to process it. So can we chunk that information and split it up using headings? And can we reduce the amount of text and maybe include some additional information in other formats like audio and so on? But also there are tools that allow you to take the text and run it through a tool like the Hemingway app. We might be able to share that in the show notes where you can reduce the reading level so that it's not that you're dumbing it down. It's just that you're making it so that if you have limited amount of time or if you have limited amount of resources to dedicate to reading the information and making sense of it, you're putting it in a way that it takes less cognitive load. You know, I I love that tool. You introduced me to that, Luis. And I also love the ability to shift the reading level on articles presented through Newzella for younger learners too, because it's really about creating access to the information rather than saying, oh, this information exists, but you won't be able to understand it at the level for which we intended, or it might just be too much presented at once. And we talked about this recently on a podcast about feedback around neuropsychological evaluations, where it's like, sometimes it's too much information, it's hard to process and figure out what to do with it. So being able to create those points of access are so powerful for so many and so many different reasons too. And if sometimes it's not possible to reduce the reading level, you can create a summary. So the summary just highlights, these are the three big ideas. Here's the one action that I want you to take. So that again, if people have limited resources at that moment, be it emotional or physical or mental resources, they can get the most out of that experience. And the other thing you can do, and this is really important, this is where you see the overlap with accessibility is it needs to work mobile first. So if it doesn't work on a phone, then it's not a good design because guess what? Often uh, the example that was used in this webinar, and I hadn't really thought about this uh, in this way, if you're a person who is experiencing domestic violence, it may be that you just have a few minutes in the bathroom where you can send out an alert or you can connect to a website that has services that will get you out of that situation and get you into a safer space. It's not like you're going to be able to sit down at a computer and have the person who's abusing you in the same room. So again, if you design it so that it's mobile first, I'm using an extreme case here, but then there are other situations where the person, we want them to be able to get connected to services at the time and the space that makes the most sense for them. And so if we design with mobile devices in mind, we create what's known as responsive design. So that it works well on a big screen, it works well on a small screen, it provides a simplified interface on the phone. Well, now you're increasing the different ways in which people can get connected to the services and the supports that they need. So I would say those two things, reducing the cognitive load and then making sure that things work on mobile are a good first step towards creating a more trauma-informed design that also addresses accessibility and inclusion. You know what I'm thinking, that the cognitive load piece most certainly allows for your executive function to better activate, right? So we don't have as much overwhelm and pressure taxing our cognitive processes. And then the accessibility part from the mobile perspective, it might actually help us to reduce some of the pressure on our limbic system, that emotionality that I have no idea what to do. I have no idea what path to take or even what's accessible. Again, this is this power of this moment of having access to technology in the palm of our hands or 
right in front of us to be able to find what we need. And that's a big part of this podcast. And I know of the work you do too, is to help people to even know what's out there and what's available to them. So I I really appreciate both of those examples. And Jerry, I wonder if you have anything to share or comment. Well, first of all, Luis, uh, I'm going to get into this in a little bit, but your story is so powerful. And I'd like to touch upon some of the emotional aspects of what we're talking about. But before we do that, I'm really enjoying listening to you both talk. That's why I'm just kind of sitting back and enjoying this. But Alexis and I were inspired to write a paper when I was in my doctoral program that was looking at the ways in which therapists are using therapy with patients of a diverse population, because anybody you're going to work with is going to be unique in their own way. Whether there is a disability or not, there's always going to be differences. And so I'm very grateful for Alexis to inform me about education, UDL, because you know, we don't get that training necessarily as therapists, as psychologists. And so the paper that was written was about how therapists can pull back to think critically about how we're delivering therapy. And it was a great exercise and in some ways a meditation for me to think about what are some guidelines we can use from the UDL principles to say, how is the person going to understand the material that we're giving? Because psychology can have psychobabble, which is essentially just high level words for things that don't need to be so complicated with what we're saying. Some things are complicated too, which is that nuance of thinking critically about how to deliver therapy, because there are some things. And as much as the paper talks about changing how we're doing it, we also want to kind of keep the integrity of what we're trying to do and the depth of what we're trying to do. And that was a a great exercise, but it was an exercise that I felt like was important for me because intuitively I think I was thinking about it, but to put it into a paper was great. So I just want to leave it at that for now. And then I have some other things I'm really eager to talk about. Yeah. And as I mentioned, any professional, whether it's a medical professional or somebody that provides mental health support, it's really important to create that safe space first. And because we're experts, I think our tendency is to come in and immediately move to solutions and immediately try to sort of share our expertise. But I think the first step is to just step back and listen and create a space where the person can share their experience and they feel like they can do that. So a big part of my work, I think, where I've been successful with a few of the students that I've had an impact on is really doing just that. It's like stepping back. And before I teach you about switch access and screen readers, let me just step back and see where you are in life. What are some of the other issues? And I don't think we do that enough with a medical profession and with other professional fields. So for instance, bedside manner, it's a huge component of this. Like you're going to be more effective if the person feels like they can open up to you and share what's really happening. (laughs) And we know that that happens with different populations. It happened recently with COVID where there are populations that did not reach out and get the help that they needed or were reluctant to get the vaccine. And that has nothing to do with just understanding the vaccine and how it works. That has to do with historical trauma, right? Communities that had experiments perform on them and so on. It's one of the reasons why we have all these protections now whenever you go and participate in a trial and so on. So just understanding that people bring that history. That's not just that personal history, but that's community history, right? And so just sometimes stepping back and creating that space when we can just talk and have a conversation and be more open and we can address those emotional components. I don't think medical or mental health professionals get enough training in that aspect of it, of like, how do you have those conversations? And that needs to, 
it needs to change because it needs to be a more holistic approach. It's not just the medical components. It's not the diagnosis. It's how do we create that safe space? I think that's so important, Luis. And I think historically, we think of individuals in the medical profession or mental health or education even as incredibly compassionate and empathetic individuals. And I think it's very interesting that there's this new movement now around compassionate care, right, that needs to be instructed and taught to people in these service industries. And I think it's an important point to remind ourselves as service providers, ourselves who are helpers and trainers and educators in our own right, that sometimes we need to take a step back and that it's not always about the solution, as many solutions as we can offer. Exactly what you're saying is being able to listen and show up and hold space for what the individual is experiencing sometimes enlightens the path forward, right? Because what we expect might be needed might not be exactly what's needed first or in that moment. And when we could have this sense of compassion in a moment of care, I think that is, again, going back to the word empowerment, I think that's what this is all about. When we can share what's happening, gain that education rather than problem solving, but saying, these are some options that might be helpful. Let's figure out what the first step is without overwhelming, right? I think that's the biggest challenge. I don't know about all of you, but I sometimes pinch myself at the opportunities that I've had to just learn what I've learned from the people I've learned from. And I'm so grateful for it. And I will say this probably many more times on this podcast, but I pinch myself in thinking about this opportunity that I have and this position of power I sometimes have in conversations that I engage in with the clients I work with, the educators I help to train or support, and even my colleagues that I need to be mindful that we're offering suggestions based on our experience and our learning and our expertise, rather than saying that we have all the answers, because often the answers lie with the individuals that we're interacting with. And we need to give space and time for that, even in our incredibly busy lives and worlds. Luis, can I ask you a question in line with that? Sure. With the experience of learning about your condition and how you would navigate life with it, do you find that experience had any impact on your own, I don't know what the word is resiliency, but a kind of self-awareness around what your needs are? And I'm asking that because I know a lot of people generally, it's not always easy to kind of just be aware and advocate for what you need. And it, was there some sort of shift in your experience with that? Well, I will go back a little bit in my personal history and just to show you how things are all connected. I do think that I had a certain resiliency that I'm grateful for because I wouldn't be here if I didn't have that. And that had to do with the fact that sort of reinventing myself and facing disruption in life, that's part of my life history. It's always been. When I was 11 years old, I was picked up from one environment. I grew up in the Dominican Republic, which is where I was born. And I was dropped into the middle of New York City, literally overnight, with no language. And I had to learn English from scratch in New York City public schools while being bullied because I didn't speak the language and so on. And so that was a traumatic experience. That was like the first traumatic experience in my life, aside from being a child of divorce, which that's also a traumatic experience because that disrupts your life and you have to adjust everything. You have to adjust where you live. You have to adjust your identity. And then um, after a few years, once I spoke English, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to attend a boarding school in Pennsylvania. 
And so I went from New York City <laughs> to rural Pennsylvania, again, literally overnight, and had to adjust to different people and different environment. All that is to say, like, each of these experiences have left their mark, both positive and negative. They've been a source of trauma, but they've also been a sense of empowerment and resiliency. And what I think is like when something is not going right in my life, I always think, well, you've been able to do it before. So to me, that always is a source of strength is like, well, you know, things are not going well at work or whatever. Dude, (laughs) you were transplanted from one country to another, left everything you knew, your whole family, your language, your culture, your food, and you were able to do it. So if you were able to do it then, then And I think that also when I was diagnosed with my visual impairment, I kind of relied on that as well to answer your question is think about like, oh, there's been a different time in my life where I felt empowered and I was able to, I don't know, rally my resources because we all have these resources. Sometimes we just don't know that we have them. So resiliency is one of those. Think about when you felt empowered in the past and when you came through. You work with athletes. It's the same thing with an athlete, right? The game may not be going the way you want it to, but you've done it in the past. So dig deep and think about that time when it worked, when you threw a complete game or whatever you felt on top of the world. And I think that really carries you forward. Luis, thank you for sharing that. And I don't, I don't want to respond just by saying, you know, how impressed and how amazing your story is without also acknowledging how much pain that goes along with that. I think sometimes we can hear stories and just say, wow, I'm so proud of you. I think that's amazing. But in some ways, I don't want to neglect that. It's likely very hard to get through. So I want to, you know, acknowledge that. Something that is coming to mind as a therapist and, you know, working with people who have gone through traumas or, you know, have their own disabilities or dyslexia or just things that perhaps they were born with that really made them feel different or just not knowing how to navigate it. There's a therapy called internal family systems therapy. There's something about that therapy I really appreciate. And the idea behind it is that we all have different parts of ourselves and they're all unique in their own way. They could be different parts of our identity, different feelings that we have that are different from each other, different ways of seeing ourselves, different ways of relating with different people. And part of the work in therapy and evolving as a person is to find ways to integrate all the different parts of ourselves into one whole, into a whole being, as you said, holistic being. And, and, and this is so in line with what you said is we have to listen to people. We have to understand all the different parts of themselves. And I have seen, and you can tell me your experience, is that sometimes when you have a disability or something that you feel different about, it may be hard for all the different parts of yourself to come out, not only to yourself, but to other people or for other people to acknowledge all the parts of yourself if they only see one part, like the disability. And so I'd, I'd like for you to share maybe your, your reaction or thoughts or feelings about that. Absolutely. I, I actually share that in my TED-Ed talk because uh, often with education, we kind of reduce you to a box <laughs> or a check mark. You check this box and then you're part of the students who have dyslexia or you're the students who are English learners, etc. But in life, we're not little boxes, right? We're more like a Venn diagram and there's lots of overlap. So the experience of being an English learner, like I said, informed how I approach my experience with disability. My experience with disability informs what I am as a designer and how I approach design of learning environments and websites and so on. So 
thinking about more holistically is really important and that we're not just a collection of all those things, like all those little boxes put together. There's lots of interaction between them and they each inform each other. So I love that idea of like a more holistic approach. And I have to say there has been progress because when I go to medical professionals now, the few that I've visited lately do take a more compassionate approach. So hopefully I don't want to throw the medical profession under the bus. Like people are working hard to make a change. Sometimes it's difficult because of the training we receive and we often do things the same way that we've done them before because it's worked for some people in the past, but it hasn't worked for everybody. And so sometimes we need to realize that we need to sort of transform the way we do things. But I do see a lot of progress. We are thinking more holistically about things. It's also hard, it seems like, when things become more standardized and more, you know, there's pressures to check those boxes and and to feel like people are upholding whatever their responsibilities are in a more structured way that that holistic side could be hard for people in the professions. Yeah, I think it's so tricky, too, because from a humanistic perspective, we all have limited exposure and experiences sometimes that create biases. And I think the importance of listening to other people's stories and really trying to appreciate variability and difference is really the intersection of leading towards progress, right? To being able to break down some of these barriers we're talking about from both a mental health, educational, and just navigational perspective. So I think it's so important to recognize that. And I'll add one more thing to this conversation is the importance of representation. The reason why things have changed is because we have new voices in some of these fields. And so I just want to emphasize that, that that's important. And that's one of the reasons why we need accessibility, why we need a focus on bias, thinking about the bias that is inherent in any experience. Every experience has bias. Every experience has barriers. It's, do we recognize them? Do we have a plan for addressing them? Are we proactive about thinking about them you know, ahead of time? And so the way that we're alerted to some of those things is because we bring other people into the conversation. So for me in education, if we make education more accessible, then that means that there are more people with disabilities who become teachers and guidance counselors and whatever, principal of their school. And so that means that a student with a disability then says, hey, I can be that. Or look, if they've achieved that, then I can achieve whatever goal it is that I've set for myself. So I think, yeah, there's important to focus on like the individual being empowered, but it's also important to think about structural changes. And one of those structural changes is thinking about like, where are the gatekeepers? Who's doing the gatekeeping? And are we opening the door to additional voices that then shift the way that whole fields approach the issues that they're facing? So whether it's bringing in women, people of color, people with different sexual orientations, whatever it may be, it just adds voices to the conversation and alerts us to things that we haven't thought about before. Because, you know, we're around people that are like-minded and like us. And so sometimes we just need to be shaken up a little bit. That's one way to do it is to bring additional people in that kind of disrupt things. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that variability and diversity makes up this beautiful tapestry of the country we live in, the context we are a part of. And I think it leaves us with a great responsibility to figure out what that means and how we move forward to continue to evolve this world in a positive direction that respects and appreciates each individual. But we can go on and think about other ways that we can improve and change the world as we frequently talk about in our conversations. But for today, there were 
so many great tidbits of advice, and they will all become part of our takeaways on show notes and possibly on our social media posts that we hope that listeners will walk away thinking about and considering how to integrate that into their worlds. But another thing that folks may or may not know about you, or maybe they should know about you, is that that other piece of understanding and owning who you are and being able to continue to express yourself in a way that allows for you to do the things you love and contribute in such a wonderful way to the world is through your hobbies. And I I wonder if you could talk for a moment about that before we explicitly share some specific advice that the audience might also benefit from as additional takeaways from this episode. Sure. And in the spirit of, again, there's different aspects of who we are. And so my hobby is a, brings it all together because I chose a hobby. It's a perfect hobby for a person with no peripheral vision. I'm a photographer. That's what I do for my hobby. And I chose the easiest photography there is. I do wildlife photography. Easy. Easy how? Easy peasy. <laughs> You know, these things are not dangerous. They don't move quickly and so on. So the lighting's always perfect when you're doing wildlife photography. You know, I'm being sarcastic. It's it's pretty difficult. But the reason why I chose it originally, I didn't end up at this point, right? It took years and this is where I am now. But it started with just taking snapshots. My brother gave me his used camera because he was going to get rid of it. And it had a whopping 1.8 megapixels. It was a little Olympus point and shoot. And I started taking photos with it and I found that I really enjoyed it. And for me, it was actually part of the healing process. We don't think of photography as pioneer mindfulness, but I will tell you when I am, unless something bites me, which just recently happened, I, I forgot and I put my knee down somewhere and then spent the rest of the week fighting off things that had bitten me. <laughs> But unless that happens, typically when I am out somewhere photographing, my focus is on the photography. My focus is on what's in front of me. And it's almost like a meditation. It takes me away from whatever it's going on at work, at home, etc. You have to be present for photography. You can't be thinking about other things or else you're just not going to be able to frame that shot perfectly or as well as you can. So it was part of the healing in that sense that it's a mindfulness practice but also it was part of the healing of me like showing the world I can do whatever I want to do. Just watch me. So I figured it out over the years. You know, For a long time, I did my photography with my iPhone because of the accessibility features that it had. And the fact that, for instance, they can recognize faces and tell you if you're taking a group photo, how many faces are there? Where are they in the frame? This is all done through AI and machine learning. That was great, but I felt limited by that. I wanted to use an actual camera because I can't get real close to a gator with an iPhone. That's not going to end well. So I always saw the photographers with their long lenses and I wanted to be, I wanted to do that. So I did the research and that's where it all starts. Do the research, right? And so I found a camera that has like 800 focus points and it has iota focus. So if I aim the camera at a bird or a gator, it will find the eye and kind of help me nail focus. Or if I'm shooting a person, I'll recognize their face and it will focus on that. There's a lot of work still involved, but the camera's there, it has those supports built into it. And it helps me do what I want to do, which is, you know, capture small flying birds or, you know, I live in Florida, so gators from a distance, a safe distance. (laughs) 
so that I can do other podcasts with all my limbs intact. So again, you know, that photography is, it's a mindfulness practice for me, but it's also a way of showing the world that people with disabilities or whatever challenges they face, they can do whatever they want. It's just a matter of figuring out how do you do it. And the best thing, my favorite thing to do is to show up somewhere with my white cane and a camera because now I'm challenging people. You know, I'm forcing them to think, hey, those two things don't go together. Why not? They should go together. Or if I have a we- I'm a wheelchair user and I want to run a marathon, it's no different. You find a way to do it. Love it. Absolutely love it, Luis. And, you know, on a final note, if you were to recommend to our audience who might encompass educators, parents, caregivers, administrators, employers, learners, policymakers, journalists, psychologists, all of the different folks that listen in, what would be one piece of advice, one big takeaway that you'd like for them to carry with them as they navigate through their roles in this world? I think just being aware of some of the technologies that are available and just having like a repertoire of those that you might share. And, you know, it may be helpful to somebody, it may not, but at least being aware of what's out there, what's available. A lot of our students are using smartphones. All of those smartphones have an accessibility area where you'll find supports for X disability or X challenge that you have, whether it's just making the text bigger or turning on the captions so that you're watching a video or a presentation, all of a sudden you get that information in multiple modalities. So just being aware of like what's out there that you could share with somebody else, because again, that's what made the difference for me or didn't make the difference initially, because initially it was just, you know, you're going to lose your vision and tough luck, (laughs) go out and figure it out. But can we share, like, here are some supports that are available that you can avail yourself of and then take it from there but at least have something to share. And I start with technology because that's what I know, but it could be as simple as like, here's some additional services. Like for me, it was the white cane training. I met a gentleman on the bus and sometimes these things happen in life. And again, he had his white cane and he told me, you know, this is what it does for me. And here's where you get training on how to use it. And that was, again, another magical moment, meeting that person, because they connected me to a wider world. And so I got training on how to use the white cane, and I started using it more. And now it's one of the biggest tools of empowerment for me. So it's like, what's next? It's not just a diagnosis. What's next for you? Like sharing that next step. And then the last piece of advice that I would share, and I was recording, I do record podcasts as well. So I'm on the other side of this podcasting. And one of the people I was interviewing on a recent podcast said, you know, it's like when my kids have a messy room and they don't know where to start. And I just say, start. (laughs) Go pick up one thing. Well, it's the same thing here. You don't have to master all the technology. You don't have to master all of it, but have like at least one thing that you can share because that's all it is. It's just, you know, start. Don't let perfection kind of be the barrier, but progress and and getting people connected is the important thing. Well said. And I think that just knowing that there's different access points to try to break down or navigate through barriers is something that alleviates a lot of additional stress and pressure for individuals. So I appreciate your messages and your advice. And We would love to have you back. Maybe you and I could talk a little bit more about specific technologies that allow for additional access because 
hopefully somebody stumbles along this episode and learns from your story and maybe it helps them think a little bit differently about how they navigate through their life or how they encounter or design for or interact with others. And it helps them to think a little bit differently or a little bit more compassionately or a little bit more accessibly. So thank you for joining us today. We're incredibly grateful for you, the work that you do and for your friendship. It's been my pleasure and thank you for having me on and also for your questions because they've really been excellent questions that really helped me connect with things that I haven't talked about in a while. So, and that's important too, in terms of empowerment is to go back in your life, like I said, and think about things in the past that can, like you said, some of them are traumatic, but some of them can be really helpful teaching tools for yourself. They can really empower you to go forward. It's what you gain from those experiences that's important. Thank you so much, Luis. We look forward to having you back and for future episodes here on Reconnected Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas and is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you're in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but is not intended to represent the opinions of those we work with or are affiliated with. The Reed Connected podcast is hosted by Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed, is produced by Lauren Biza, our communications and marketing coordinator is Colin Faley, and original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Read Connected podcast will be releasing a new episode every two weeks each season, so please subscribe for updates and notifications. And you can follow us on Instagram at Read Connected Podcast and Twitter at Read Connected. R-E-I-D Connected. We're grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meantime, be curious, be open, be well. Be well.